When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape from Cleveland.com, Doug Maurice, Ellis Williams, Scott Pasco, and we are starting to take a peek at the opposition. Why? Because the Browns are so locked in and ready for this season. They don't even need the draft. They frankly, I think they might just pass every round. What a wow. baller move that would be. Like Andrew Barry just walks up to the mic and is like, pass. Like, we don't need any other players. But that'll probably take some too. But we're doing a lot of draft coverage elsewhere. So we'll check in on that at some point. But Scott Patsko, idea generator, came up with this plan of let's start looking at Brown's opponents. And here's the thing that I think we're how you should take this. It's the Browns fans guide to how other teams in the AFC North and other teams got better. It's not just, hey, the Baltimore Ravens got better. It's what about the Baltimore Ravens getting better particularly matters to the Browns, right? So we have like a – it's still a Browns lens that we're doing this. So we'll do the Bengals and Steelers, maybe the Chiefs and Bills on future podcasts. We're starting with the Ravens today. We're going to do each side of the ball for about 25 minutes, and we're going to start off with Scott Patsko diving in on Gotta Watch the Tape. Hey, you know, the Browns did pass kind of inadvertently uh, in the draft uh, involving the Ravens a while back. They they didn't turn in their card on time. I think the Ravens took a nose tackle. It was it was a mess. But yeah, just dropping the mic and saying, yeah, we don't need it. That would be a that'd be a baller move for sure. Yeah. Uh, So the Ravens are good. That's a newsflash, right? (laughs) Uh, You have to go back to like 2015 to find a Ravens defense that wasn't ranked in the top 10 in DVOA. They were 22nd that year, which sounds about right because they were 5-11. and 11. Uh, It was the last time they had a losing record. But since then, it's been 6-4, 4-5-9 last season. And they broke down kind of even. They were 10th against the pass and uh, 12th against the run. But we're going to focus a little more on, on pass defense today because that's where the biggest changes happened for the Ravens this offseason, at least their biggest losses in free agency. Uh, Edge Yannick Ngakwe, who played 11 games with them last season, he signed with the Raiders. Uh, Matthew Judon uh, signed with the Patriots. And another Edge, uh, Jihad Ward, signed with the Jaguars. So those, those three guys were first, fourth, and seventh in pressures for the Ravens last season. Judon was first. He had 46. That included a team-high seven sacks. And Ngakwe had 28 pressures, again, in just uh, 11 games with them. And he had three sacks. Ward wasn't really on the field to, to get pressure on the quarterback. He's more of a, your sure tackler, solid against the run kind of guy, not really a pass rush threat, but still he's a the guy they lost. The Ravens re-signed edge rushers, Pernell McPhee and Tyus Bowser, who were actually second and third in pressure. So even though they lost, you know, Ngakwe and, and Judon, they, they still retained two guys who were very important to what they were doing up front. Uh, and they also got uh, defensive tackle Derek Wolf, who led all their interior linemen, Actually, all their alignment in, in overall in snaps. So that's was kind of the bigger deal for them is actually retaining talent instead of letting it all go out the door. 
But that's why the Ravens are kind of like the Browns right now and that most analysts and reporters think that they need to add pass rush help this offseason, whether it's the draft or signing one of the guys who remain on the market like Jadavian Clowney or older guys like Justin Houston, Melvin Ingram. Those guys are still out there. Even though they still have McPhee and Bowser, they're not the pass rushing, I guess, types that Judon and Ngakwe were. McPhee excels against the run really well. Bowser actually is known for, for being pretty well in, in coverage, although they both, uh, which I'll get to, they both had their moments in pass rush against the Browns last season. As for the rest of the defense, the Ravens really didn't see much change there. Um, LJ Fort, I believe, is still a free agent, but they did extend the contract of cornerback Marlon Humphrey during the season, so he'll be back. Uh, they also have their rookies from last year at linebacker Patrick Queen, Malik Harrison, Marcus Peters, the ageless Jimmy Smith, um, and their safeties remain solid. Chuck Clark, Deshaun Elliott. Um, so again, pass rush is really what's expected to be their target. And an interesting thing about that is the Ravens picked 27th in the first round, which is one spot behind the Browns. And when teams have the same record and reach the same level of the playoffs, they end up flipping spots throughout the draft. So in the first round, the Browns do pick right ahead of the Ravens, but then it's going to flip in the second round. The Ravens are going to go right ahead and they're just going to keep going back and forth. So you basically have two teams who might be targeting an edge rusher at 26 and 27, which could lead to a situation where the Ravens want to trade and move ahead of the Browns or the Browns get scared and hear that the Ravens are trying to trade up. So they trade up. That's basically two teams possibly targeting the same thing. So uh, that's something to think about as you go into the draft, especially if neither team adds one of those guys who are still on the market. So I wanted to stop there and get your thoughts on where the Ravens are now before I get into how some of these departures could affect things against the Browns. So I, I do want to ask this question because you just named a lot of important guys for the Ravens, right? Who are kind of moving around and none of them are as famous as Miles Garrett, right? I know who Miles Garrett is. It's like Matt Judon. I don't even really, I just, I didn't know who he was until like the market started and the Patriots signed Matt Judon. Is there a, are we at a point with the Ravens? Wink Martindale has been the defensive coordinator for several years there. Now he was a linebackers coach before that. Dean Pease was the defensive coordinator for several years uh, under Harbaugh before that. Ellis, are, are we, is there any point with the Ravens where it's like, it doesn't matter who their players are. And that's like, I mean, I think that's sort of what every team wants to get to, right? Where it's like, well, listen, we have a couple of superstars. It's like, well, we got Lamar Jackson and maybe, you know, you had, Ray Lewis, and you have certain guys, you had Ed Reed, right? But but then you just have a culture and a way of doing things and that guys move in and out. Is Baltimore at that point? Like the Patriots are at that point, right? Like, I'm not sure how many franchises are. Defensively, especially, is that where Baltimore is, Ellis, that as much as we want to know all this stuff, the specifics of the dudes don't matter as much. Yeah, it sure seems that way. I've said this on a, a few of our pods um, since really the Ravens lost Ngakwe and Judon that Baltimore leads the NFL in comp picks received since its inception. I think they've had something like 80, which is nine more than the next closest team. They're expected to have uh, two more fourth, fourth round picks coming in with the departure of Judon and Ngakwe. And that seems to be their bread and butter and their trend. They will replace these edge guys with comp picks. Um, if only they had a record of drafting defensive players that they did 
um, at receiver, which I'll get into. They miss at that position a ton, but they do not miss on defense. Uh, it's also a team that pressures um, more than anyone in the league. It's really them in Pittsburgh, uh, blitzing, I should say, bringing an extra defender, which makes up for, I guess, not really needing as elite as a edge rusher because you can generate that pressure in different ways. This The strength of this defense lies in their defensive backs. They're physical. They play press man. Things I'm sure Scott will talk about. But is it when it comes to edge rusher and how they build this defense, I think they are extremely comfortable cultivating their own talent, finding it in the draft, and then playing press man coverage and blitzing, creating chaos. And it's been working for a while now. What do you think about that, Scott, that idea? I was going to mention some of the guys who they've lost, and I think it's a good point that they – kind of just cycle guys through. You remember Paul Kruger came to the Browns. These are all guys who went, who left the Ravens and got at least 16 million in guaranteed money. Paul Kruger, Pernell McPhee, who's back with them, but he left the first time and went to the Bears. Zadarius Smith, uh, and of course now Judon and Ngakwe. I mean, that's that's a lot of guys making a lot of money, kind of making their making their case with the Ravens and then moving on and, and getting paid. And they just, they find new guys and, yeah, they're losing pass rush here, but as I'm going to get into, it's they they, they have guys, <laughs> and yeah. the blitzing, just the scheme in general. I mean, Judon led the Ravens in with 46 pressures. Like I said, the Browns had three guys over 50. Like the Steelers, the Steelers here, they had one, two, three, four guys over 40, two guys over 70. So again, they blitz a lot too. But the Ravens, it just seems to be more about what's going on behind them in the back end and just scheming scheming up pressure basically again this they call him wink because the talk show host was wink martindale his name's don martindale he's actually an ohio guy he's from the dayton area um and he's been their coordinator for the last several years i know you know it's one of those things when when we were sort of in the off season and these coordinators are getting interviews for head coaching jobs and stuff there was at least something out of baltimore of like why isn't don martindale getting some head coaching interviews like what this guy's doing is great and so he is a very established defensive coordinator now i'm gonna say the opposite of what i said before which again is a key to good podcasting don't be afraid to contradict yourself within a two-minute window (laughs) i also think you can believe that it's a system that it's a way of doing business it's a scheme it's a culture right up until the point where you lose too much talent and then you say oh shoot it does matter if the players are good and we spent, we've said Yannick Ngakwe's name a lot on the Orange and Brown Talk podcast in the last 18 months because he was perceived as a difference maker, as an edge rusher. You know, Matt Judon was productive. So on the other hand, Scott, right? I mean, these were two guys that did get it done. You're going to talk about what they did against the Browns, but I don't also, while giving you know, John Harbaugh and Wink Martindale credit, I don't want to be 100% dismissive of like, ah, it doesn't matter if they lost guys because we've acted like Yannick Ngakwe is a, is a game changer. So we have to keep that in mind as well. Right. So from a pass rush perspective, I guess when you're looking at the Ravens versus the Browns, the Ravens didn't do a ton of damage against the Browns that season in pass rush. Baker was under pressure just 12 times in week one, and he was blitzed 24 times. Not that he performed well uh, under pressure. He was just two of nine, uh, but his one pick came from a clean pocket and he was only sacked twice. He had to scramble once um, in week 14. Baker was blitzed 23 times and under pressure 20 times. 
He was seven of 16 under pressure, no picks, no sacks, had to scramble four times. When he was blitzed in that week 14 game, he was 10 of 19 with a touchdown uh, and, and one pick. So guys like Ngakwe and Judon were all part of that, but they didn't contribute as much as Browns fans might think. Um, let's start with Judon because he played in both those games. He started both games. Two pressures, no sacks over two games against the Browns. He had a PFF grades of 56.4 and 51.3, which is in the replaceable level. And he had about equal snaps from the left side and the right side in week one. So both Wills and Conklin kind of got the job done against him. Uh, in week 14, he kind of stayed almost exclusively against Conklin. And again, he came away with almost nothing in the pass rush. Um, Ngakwe, he only played in week 14. He did have a team high five pressures in that game, but he had no sacks and all but six of his snaps came against Wills. So they didn't have big games against the Browns last season, but what the Ravens did is they retained the guys who did. And by that, I mean McPhee and Bowser, who were both kind of more productive from a pass rush perspective. Bowser's uh, pass rush productivity, which we've talked about before, is uh, pressures on a per snap basis. In two games against the Browns, it was 12.5, which is super high. That led the Ravens, obviously, uh, and it ranked fourth among edge rushers uh, if you're just looking at those two weeks. He had seven pressures and 32 pass rush snaps against the Browns. McPhee was at 6.9, which was second best on the Ravens, four pressures, 29 snaps. Ngakwe in in week 14 was 7.8. So he was getting pressure overall. Uh, It just wasn't getting to the end of that where you're getting sacks and making game-changing plays. Uh, McPhee and Bowser, though, in week 14, both over 10. So, again, the Ravens are bringing back guys who performed better uh, in those two games. Judon, by the way, his PRP against the Browns last season was 3.2. This is a guy who finished the season ranked 13th among edge rushers in this stat. He was up at 8.3. But against the Browns, it just wasn't the case. So the Ravens obviously lost good players. But from a Browns perspective, they didn't lose the players who did the most damage against them. Ellis, you you mentioned a couple times that when the Browns had that Monday night shootout with the Ravens, they took advantage of an injury in the Baltimore secondary and sort of picked on a spot. And you thought that was a very important part of that that shouldn't be overlooked. Generally last year, did the Ravens defense worry you from a Browns perspective? Like, like how much of a problem did you think the Ravens defense was for the Browns a year ago? A huge problem. Uh, I think they matched up really well with Cleveland. Um, Mary Kay Cabot has been adamant about Odell Beckham Jr. struggles against Baltimore these past two years, which essentially is really only three games. He didn't play in that Monday night game, but when your best receiver, um, you know, is getting into it with Marlon Humphrey, uh, getting beat up and held and grabbed. It really encapsulates what that Ravens defense does. And then we talk about Baker Mayfield struggles against pressure, which I think is going to be one of the biggest storylines of the first, you know, eight weeks of the NFL season going into 2021. Was that a 2019 and early 2020 narrative on Baker, or is that going to continue to, handle serve as a a detriment to him because it's exactly what the Ravens do. So if your receivers aren't able to get free versus man press and your quarterback does not perform well against pressure and high blitz rates, then you see the problem there. The first half of that Monday night game and the second half were two different games. And it 
obviously had a lot to do with Lamar Jackson, but from just an offense and defensive perspective, that injury allowed Kevin Stefanski to dial up plays that Baker Mayfield saw the same way his coach did and really exploited what would have been their number four or five corner. And then Baker just made plays too. You know, he, he started taking off that rushing touchdown is one I'll never forget. It, it could have, it could have signaled a, despite in a loss, a, a changing of narrative really of this Browns offense against Baltimore's defense. We shall see. But when I go through those top five corners on the Ravens and we talk about Wink Martindale and his infatuation with bringing pressure, I'm still concerned. We're, we're going to have to see because that might have that was either some Monday night magic or, uh, again, a, a changing of a narrative. But that's that's something we're not going to find out until these games get played next year. It's interesting because, Scott, you have often talked about the idea of sort of investing in coverage rather than edge rushers. Right. In the in the name of shutting down a passing game. And as the Ravens sort of move edge guys in and out, not that they don't invest in it, but it's like it's the back end that really worries you. You know, you look at these guys, They the, the Ravens, for as good as they are defensively, they've used their first-round pick on a defensive player only twice in the last six years. And some of the names that we're talking about here, McPhee was a fifth-round pick in 2011. Judon was a fifth-round pick in 2016. And Bowser was a second-round pick in 2017. You know, they've gotten some production out of guys without taking them in the first round. But it does feel like, I think you mentioned this off the top, Scott, that they might be in the same area in early rounds with this draft with some edge rusher interest. And it'll be very curious to see. There's a couple of the Miami guys, Jason Oway from Penn State, that it might be like, who's is, are the Browns taking a guy away from the Ravens or the Ravens taking a guy away from the Browns? Curious how that uh, prog- progresses. But Scott, like that, right? I mean, you know, you, you believe that, right? That, that it's, it is in the modern NFL a little more about coverage than it is about pass rush. And maybe the, are the Ravens a good example of that? Yeah, I think they are. And I think the, the best defenses, I think, lean more. They're, they're going to have more strength on the back end, at least if you're, if you're looking at how these teams are ranked and, and efficiency numbers and stuff like that. Teams that excel in coverage tend to rank higher than teams that are really good in pass rush, but just they do not have, you know, if they don't get to the quarterback, then they're going to have issues on the back end. And I think it's really – it's telling that when Andrew Barry went into free agency this offseason, he took a linebacker and also two, de- two defensive backs from defenses that were similar to the Browns and that they were not among the league leaders in blitz percentage or pressure rate, really, but they were both coming from high-ranked defenses. And they had gotten the job done, I guess, in a coverage sense, more so obviously the defensive backs, John Johnson and, and Troy Hill. But on defenses that really that's that's where things kind of were held together. And I know the Rams obviously have Aaron Donald on the line, but just from a percentage pressure rate and percentage, they were not highly ranked. So it just seems like Andrew Barry is maybe focusing on that. And he also is a guy who told us, I don't know, a few weeks ago at this point, even before free agency started, that don't get zeroed in on that edge rushing spot next to Miles Garrett. Because while you all might think it's a huge deal, he might not have it uh, as high of a priority as, as fans and, and people who watch the league. Yeah, so this I, is go real ahead, quick, Doug. Yeah, this is going to become a theme of this pod, the the underwhelming offseason thus far of the Baltimore Ravens and the improvement Andrew Barry and the Cleveland Browns have made. 
It's interesting. I, I always like the idea of, I think when you're trying to get good as a franchise, you just have to try to get good, right? I mean, the Browns just had to get a foundation, but they have their feet under them to the extent now where they do have to think about how do we beat Baltimore twice a year going forward? And I have often pushed back against like, listen, you know, you don't have to win your division to make the playoffs. You're fine getting as a wild card. Maybe you lose to the Ravens twice, but you still go 12 and four and they go 11 and five and you lost to them twice, but you finish ahead of them. Right. But now where they are, the specificity of it, it does feel like Scott that dealing with the way the Ravens play defense, dealing with the blitzes that are going to come. That is something that Kevin Stefanski and Baker Mayfield will prioritize as we've got to have a plan for that because that is the next step for us. Right. And so where are they now and, and, and how much better can they get? Do you think Scott in dealing with that kind of blitz pressure? Yeah. When, when Baker's under pressure, he's not good. <laughs> when last season, uh, his passing grade under pressure, I'm scrolling, scrolling, scrolling here. He was 58th, uh, among quarterbacks, uh, 41.0. If you want to, filter that for guys who are maybe more starters. He was 31st. So still he's early had started half the you know, games of the season. He was still 31st. So not good. But the thing is he's gotten better at identifying the blitz. So mm-hmm. getting pressure on him, that's great if you can do that, but he's making it more difficult because he's gotten better at that. And I already mentioned how he did uh, in the first two games against the Ravens, but against the blitz as a rookie, he ranked 28th in passing grade. He jumped up to eighth in 2019 in passing grade against the Blitz. Last season, moved back a little bit to 13th. Still in the same range. He was like at 80.9 in 2019 and 77.3. But as with most things with Baker, you kind of have to split last season in two, right? Because it's clear that over the second half, he got better in a lot of ways. So if you do that with uh, his uh, grade against the Blitz, uh, over the final eight regular season games, he actually ranked third in passing grade. Wow. Blitz, 84.2. He faced 100 blitzes over that stretch, which ranked fifth most among quarterbacks. He completed 64% of his passes, four touchdowns, one pick. That isn't outstanding, but he did lead the NFL on what the PF, PFF calls big-time throws. He had eight of those, and those are throws that show off your ball location. They usually deal with tight windows. It's generally throws that are further downfield. So he did well in that respect. He also had a passer rating of 104.4 against the Blitz over the second half of the season, uh, which, again, ranked 14th. But the important thing to point out here is only two quarterbacks ranked ahead of Baker faced as many Blitzes as he did over that span. So over the second half of the season, there were very many quarterbacks who, were, who, who saw 100 or more Blitzes. So all this is to say that the Ravens and their Blitz-happy defense going forward now might not have the same effect on Baker as it will on other quarterbacks. And I think the crowning achievement of Baker versus the Blitz was actually in the wild card game against the Steelers. Yeah, yeah. They were third in Blitz percentage last season. The Ravens were first. But the Steelers blitzed Baker 20 times in that game. He completed 14 of 20 for two touchdowns. He was only under pressure uh, five times. So he has gotten better against the Blitz. You get better against the Blitz, you decrease the amount of time you're under pressure. And, you know, that's something that Baker obviously wants to do going into 2021 because you put anybody under pressure, they're not going to do as well. Tom Brady is not as good under pressure, obviously, as, as he is, you know, when he's in a clean pocket. So doing that and being able to do that on a consistent basis against the Ravens, which he's going to see multiple times every year, and 
you know, going forward, maybe even in the playoffs is going to be a big deal for Baker. That is, that is one of the best stats. One of the most informative stats that I think I've heard on this numbers podcast. That is in an indication guys, right. Of teams thinking, well, the way to beat the Browns is to blitz Baker. And then him being like, no, I'm better at this now. It's not that if he faced in the second half of the season, he faced the fifth most blitzes in the league and he was the third best guy against it, right? That is, that is big stuff to me. And especially as you apply it to this matchup and listen, I, you know, we've got to include it, but the opener against the Ravens last year is, is practically like a preseason game to me, right? I mean, it's COVID it's Stefanski's first game. I mean, it's just not indicative of, of anything going forward, but Ellis, that is learning. That is getting better. I was going to suggest, are we at the point, you know, it's like Ohio state, every practice has a Michigan period, right? Where they work on something and they talk about Michigan all year. Should like the Browns be at the point, should they have a Ravens period in every practice where they put 13 defensive players on the field they bring six every snap and Baker has to figure it out. And it's like, we want you to be under pressure in a way that when the Ravens do it to you, you don't care. But Ellis is, he's like already on that path. And you were nodding along as Scott was mentioning the playoff game against the Steelers. There's two teams in this division that try to do that to him and he's getting better at it. Yeah. I think that would be a waste of practice time, quite frankly. Uh, he, he's graduated past it in weeks 14, 17, and then 18, the wild card game, like, Scott pointed out playing Baltimore, of course, in week 14, and then those back-to-back weeks against the Steelers, resting starters or not, Baker was money. He was spot on, and that is exactly to identifying the blitz, both a coaching mechanism of education and knowing what your quarterback must see and identify pre-snap to then application of your quarterback, seeing it and executing it on the field to then gashing them. I mean, Baker's really – Time in pocket against the Steelers in that wild card game, I think, was just barely over two seconds. It, it was his fastest uh, time of throwing uh, the whole season, if I'm remembering that correctly. And that to me just signals like, nope, we've got you guys figured out. Feel free to bring an extra guy or two. The ball's going to be out of my hands before y'all get here anyway. And I'm honestly realizing in real time here that I think these teams are just going to blitz Baker less in 2021. And whether that means bring four, drop seven, still have an emphasis on pressure, simulated pressures, but play more coverage. And really then you're bringing the Chiefs game into this and eliminating short game. Because if you're getting rid of the ball in two seconds, you're not having, it's not a deep drop back passing game, right? So it was a short game uh, feast that the the Browns were able to have, whether that was screens, uh, that quick score to Austin Hooper, I remember in Pittsburgh, um, that was taken away by the chiefs. So it's that, that balance that we're going to have to see from an evolution of Kevin Stefanski's offense. But as for Baker being on the same page with what Kevin was seeing on film and then on the field and then Alex Van Pelt, because I mean, he was the one calling the plays in that wildcard game. Um, the growth of Baker and throwing that week one game out is exactly where we're at. And I think it really brings into question what the Ravens are going to do next year against this Browns offense, rather than, what are the Browns going to do to combat the Ravens? I know that might not make sense considering they went 0-2, but it really feels like that's where this offense is right now. Let's say one thing about that week one game, because in doing this, I went back to that week one game, and I know we've talked multiple times, like, do we throw it out? Does it mean anything? Is it preseason? 
if you look at that game from an offensive standpoint, <clears throat> the Browns had turnovers on their first few possessions. Jimmy Smith was the only Ravens defensive back who had more than 10 snaps in a grade above backup level in coverage in that game. Marlon Humphrey did not perform great in that game. The Browns averaged 5.3 yards per carry in the first half, 5.1 for the game. You put all those things, start tacking those, those things on, you realize how much of that game was self-inflicted wounds for the Browns. And that going forward, you might see more games like that week 14 game in that here's two offenses, good luck stopping them. Uh, and that's, you know, it's going to be a high scoring affair. But the more you watch that first game, it's like, man, this is a, a team that just did not really have an understanding of what they're doing <laughs> in this game. I mean, there were receivers open and they had a quarterback who wasn't yet ready to find them in that offense, I think. Yeah, Scott, yeah. that's a, that's exactly it. The offense was not ready. The defense never improved, right? I mean, that Monday night game is a shootout of all shootouts. And that's what I'm, I'm excited to talk about that in my segment. And that's exactly what happened because as soon as the offense figured out what it needed to do, it, they really had the Ravens. They were in a better spot versus, versus the Ravens in week one than we all gave it credit for, as you just pointed out. So let me try to wrap this up as we look at Baltimore defense and how it affects the Browns. Is it that Baltimore traditionally has been a successful defense that at times has given the Brown trouble, but the Browns have gotten better at figuring it out and the Ravens lost some talent from that defense in this offseason. And so that as we now look to the future, the scheme, the what they try to do, the Browns are are better able to handle that. And also the actual guys on the field maybe took a little bit of a step back. Is that is that a fair wrap up for this, Scott? Maybe. <laughs> I think like the Browns the Browns closed the gap. I think the fact that they do have everybody coming back and the Ravens are not obviously going to fall off the table and, and become a, a defense that can't get pressure on the quarterback. So again, it's, I think the Browns still have the advantage on offense. And if you look at that second game, you know, they didn't have OBJ. They didn't have Hooper in that game uh, either. Um, the Ravens pretty much had the same defense and they had Ngakwe added to the, to the list uh, the second time around. So the fact that the Browns did put up those kind of those points in that second game is uh, promising for them going forward. So I, again, I just, I think they're where they want to be as far as offense versus the Ravens defense. They just got to keep getting better and, and Baker keeping, keeping his improvement against the blitz is, is a big part of that. All right. That's Ravens defense and what it means for the Browns offense up next. What did the Ravens do on offense? And what does it mean for the Browns' defense? That's with Ellis Williams on Gotta Watch the Tape. Doug Scott Ellis back. I just want to mention very quickly, I wrote about this the other week, but looking at the latest uh, NFL futures odds in the AFC, this is not to win the AFC, it's to win the Super Bowl, but the Chiefs are number one at 5-1 to one in the AFC. Then the Bills are the next AFC team at 12-1. to run, twelve to one. The Ravens at 13-1. to one. And then the Browns at 20 to one. So the Ravens are in the betting market kind of substantially ahead of the Browns, 13 to one to 20 to one, which I think is wrong. I, I don't know what you would look at and say, like, well, there's that kind of gap. I mean, I, whatever, but we'll talk about that a little bit more. What do the Ravens do on offense? Ellis Williams diving in. I got to watch tape. Before I dive in, I just want to say, you know, Scott, I, when you said no, no one's better under pressure, I, I tend to agree with you, but 
I got to say, you and me on this podcast, we do a little prep, but I do think we are at our best when Doug throws questions at us that we are unprepared for and the pressure's on us and we just spit fact, right? That's right. That's right. I think we're getting better. I, I'm better recognizing when that blitz is coming, but you still, it, it catches you off guard. Doug's getting more creative. I blitz I, like five guys every snap. And then if you, but I'm open, just throw deep. If you can get the ball out, I'm giving up a touchdown, but I'm coming after you. That's what we do. I got to watch the tape. All right, y'all. Um, as for this Ravens offense, look, I've been vocal about my respect for Baltimore and it really starts and stops with Lamar Jackson. I think he's a top five NFL quarterback with one of one talent and upside. I rank Baltimore, the third best team in the AFC during our AFC power ranking roundtable about a, a month ago, I think now. Uh, but look, that was basically right after the season concluded since then. And as I said, in the, in the first segment, the Ravens have had quite an underwhelming offseason. Scott got into the players they lost on defense and how essentially this is a plug-and-play type of defensive philosophy predicated on generating pressure in creating chaos and allowing their talent to win on the back end. That talent is still there. Much like this offense, the heart blood is Lamar Jackson and their running game, which, of course, is still intact. Offensively, this isn't as much about who the Ravens lost – because they didn't really lose anyone of note. Instead, GM Eric DaCosta signed former Browns and Giants guard Kevin Zeitler to a three-year, $22 million deal, $16 million guaranteed, which averages out to about $17.5 million APY. Um, I, I'll take a quick break there just because I think it's interesting to assess the guard market in general. It applies to the Browns, largely, with Wyatt Teller. Joe Tooney signed a like $16 million uh, average per year contract with the Kansas City Chiefs, something Wyatt Teller took real note of, I'm sure. And then here are the Ravens getting Kevin Zeitler at essentially, I mean, less than half that, really half that over three years. Now, Zeitler is coming off his lowest graded season of his career thus far. The nine-year pro earned a 65.9 grade from Pro Football Focus, ranked 50th among guards. In his defense, however, the Giants' offensive line was poorly coached much of the year. They fired their offensive line coach during the Week 11 bye. And though Zeitler's play didn't you know, drastically improve, there were, there were some better games later in the season. So really, the Ravens are banking on a bounce-back season from Zeitler, or he's trending down like a 31-year-old veteran interior offensive lineman could. Scott, as our Browns historian, Doug, as someone who was here, of course, during Zeitler and the whole OBJ trade and all that. Um, any thoughts on Zeitler headed to Baltimore and, and what he may have left in the tank? He's good. I thought it's interesting. He's going to a team that is all about the running game or at least run blocking. And maybe he's always been a, a better pass blocker. That's really what he excelled at when he was here with the Browns. I think he was okay. one of the best uh, his first year anyways. So, I mean, look, he's solid and that's, what the Ravens need and it's not like you need huge holes for Lamar Jackson to do his thing. <laughs> He's more about being elusive and yeah, I, if they're going to go out and get somebody, I, I mean, they could do, do a lot worse than Kevin Zeitler. I, I thought it was interesting when, you know, the Sashi Brown era, that analytical approach, they invested in guards because they had Batonio and then they signed Zeitler and I was all in on like, listen, everybody thinks it's tackles, but athletic guards who can get out and pull interior pressure in the pass game blows up the pass game faster than anything like investing in guards. Like, I think that's like the next 
the next over the horizon. Okay, that's where the league's going. Guards are actually huge. And then John Dorsey was like, I don't want to pay a guard. I'm trading him for Olivier Vernon. Who cares about guards? And so, okay. But it is interesting to me in general, and I think it applies to two guys you're going to talk about, Ellis. Kevin Zeitler is a huge signing for the Ravens, and the Browns wouldn't start him. Right. It's just, I mean, everybody has holes and don't, but it's like, if Kevin Zettler was like, Hey, can I come back? The Browns would be like, I don't know what we would do with you. So it's just like, if you think this, this is a reminder, there are places where the Browns are quite a bit ahead of the Ravens and the offensive line is one of them. Are you saying the Ravens are taking the Browns trash? I mean, would I say that? (laughs) Would I put that on a gotta watch the tape t-shirt taking the Browns trash? Ravens 2021. Yes, I would. That is what I'm saying. Thank you for crystallizing it, Scott. Okay. It, it honestly, it all lines up though. Like I, I am in agreement and it, it, I think a theme aside from the underwhelming offseason thus far with this Baltimore team is they really rely on their, you, their one of a kind talent to solve their inefficiencies elsewhere, whether it's that back seven and really those four corners in their defense or it's Lamar Jackson on offense because Kevin Zeitler has been brought in to replace a hole that right guard Marshall Yonda created last off season when he retired. Now Baltimore never really figured that position out during the year. The Ravens offensive line was not their 2019 selves for a few reasons. Okay. So first it was Yonda never really figured out how to replace him. That's Zeitler's goal. Now then left tackle Ronnie Stanley, like a week after signing a, a huge, left tackle near market resetting top of the market contract suffered a season ending ankle injury. His outlook for 2021 is up in the air at best, much like Grant Delpit, how we are led to believe he will be back. We wouldn't hear. We, as the media as reporters who cover this team would not hear if Grant Delpit wasn't doing well. And we're not going to hear, from Baltimore, if Ronnie Stanley all of a sudden has a setback, you prepare for those things internally, but there's no way of knowing until, you know, week one, let's, let's line it up. And then there's the right tackle Orlando Brown jr. Situation. He played hundred percent of snaps last year, but requested a trade as soon as the season ended. That situation remains extremely fluid, quite complicated. Perhaps they move him before the draft. Essentially what he's upset about is not playing left tackle. That's Ronnie Stanley's position. They paid him. And now Orlando Brown is stuck at right tackle and doesn't want to be one. He doesn't have a whole lot of leverage. He's set to become a free agent in March. So a year from now, he can play out the rest of his rookie deal or he can get traded. Again, it remains fluid. So again, as we continue this massive strength of the Ravens, and I like how Scott laid out the history of the Ravens defense before his dive, because that really can't apply to the Ravens offense because everything changed, right? Once Lamar Jackson got there. And now they're at a point where that historic 2019 season is becoming difficult to recapture their strength in their offensive line, coupled with three tight end formations led by Mark Andrews, Hayden Hurst, and Nick Boyle has now pivoted towards a weakness. Hurst was traded last offseason. Boyle was hurt in week 10. Uh, dislocated kneecap. He is one of the best blocking tight ends in football. And then all of a sudden you just are left with Mark Andrews who still had another really good season. But look, imagine if the Browns played with just off Austin Hooper. It's a completely different offense, right? So when we look at this offensive line of the Ravens, it 
was once a strength. And now I have a lot of concerns that though they finished um, eighth in adjusted yards and I think seventh in DVOA, I'm going to get to that a little bit later. This is an offensive line that is trending the wrong way, unless this is Eitler signing is a home run. And I'm basically going to repeat myself when we get to the wide receivers, but they put a lot of pressure on Lamar Jackson because it's exactly what you said, Scott, right? You don't need a lot of, you know, you don't need gaping holes with Lamar Jackson. You don't need to pass block for a long time with Lamar Jackson. Lamar Jackson solves all these problems until it's just too much. So the Ravens are regressing at a spot that was their 2019 strength. And unless they do something in the draft, this is a unit trending the wrong way. While I think the Browns continue to get stronger up front, of course, Miles Garrett, Sheldon Richardson, you expect a jump from Jordan Elliott, attack McKinley, and then there's still additions they can make in the draft. I think that we're starting to see these rosters separate at one of the most important rooms in football, which of course is offensive line. So we're, I'm just going to do this real quick. You've heard what Scott said. You've just heard the beginning of what Ellis said. We're going to take a quick break so that you can go find a sports book and slam the Browns to win this division. Are you serious? Who actually thinks the Ravens are better than the Browns? And we're going to let Ellis keep talking. Go find somewhere to make a bet. The Browns are the best team in the AFC North. Oh, we'll give you 90 seconds. I'll give you like 10 seconds. Go do it. We'll be right back. All right, we're going to let Ellis keep going because he has more good stuff to say. But to your point, Ellis, everything you just said about Kevin Zeitler and sort of sliding into this offensive line room sort of also applies to receiver where the Ravens did get a guy. But like if that guy tried to come to the Browns, I think the Browns would be like, I don't know what we would do with you. I guess we could use you, but he's supposed to transform this receiver room for the Ravens because the whole thing with them is that they haven't gotten the guy for Lamar Jackson to really have as a number one target. Yeah, they, they have not figured that out. They've gotten no production on the outside, outside the numbers, a, a playmaking receiver to just make life easier for a quarterback that already is struggling to be an outside the numbers thrower. When a team brings in a guy like Des Bryant who hadn't played a down or caught a touchdown since 2018, that really speaks to the uh, urgency of the room. And exactly what they did, on the offensive line, I see a, a mere copy at receiver, except the major difference is that position wasn't a strength in 2019. It was a weakness, the receiver room, and it remained one in 2020. The Ravens have missed in the draft at wide receiver, simply put. And I, I said that in Scott's dive, you know, the, the, their track record of su- success at D line, edge rusher, corner safety is nothing compared to what they're, how they're missing at receiver. Uh, Marquise Brown, Hollywood Brown, a 2019 first round pick, Miles Boykin, a 2019 third round pick, and then Devin Duvernay, a 2020 third rounder, all selected over the past two seasons. All three seem to be number two or number three receivers at best. Keep in mind in 2019, they passed on both AJ Brown and DK Metcalf. Brown was actually, uh, Marquise Brown, that is, was the first receiver taken, and a lot of teams passed on AJ Brown and DK Metcalf, but don't be that team because you desperately need it. So, how do they try to correct that so far this offseason? By signing veteran receiver Sammy Watkins to a one-year, $4.5 million deal. This is the head-scratching part for me. This is the part where 
my claims of Lamar Jackson being a top five quarterback in this league and the Ravens being a number, the third best team in the AFC really start to concern me and take a hit. I already detailed what's going on along, along the offensive line, how I'm worried about it. I'm even more worried here. They struck out on Juju Smith-Schuster. They couldn't pull T.Y. Hilton away from the Indianapolis Colts. They weren't really in the market for top guys like Kenny Galladay of the Detroit Lions. Uh, Corey Davis, another guy they missed out on, which I think was largely cap-related. But regardless, you missed, and I get it. Watkins immediately becomes their most experienced and accomplished receiver. However, the 27-year-old is coming off his least productive season. He battled injuries throughout 2020, caught just 37 balls for 421 yards and two touchdowns in just 10 games with the Chiefs. After visiting with the, at the facility, it made sense why Watkins joined Baltimore. He'll be reunited with offensive coordinator Greg Roman, whose offense he was in Buffalo was the only time Sammy Watkins produced a 1,000-yard uh, season. So, again, I get it. Best-case scenario, this is a nice buy-low option. But the Ravens have been terrible at drafting this position for too long. Over the past three drafts, Baltimore selected six wide receivers. That probably won't change in about a month, four weeks when we get to the draft. I'm sure they're going to make it seven, maybe eight wide receivers in four years. Who knows? They need to get this right, right? So what I'm trying to say is I'm starting to worry about Jackson's development as a passing quarterback because, meanwhile, the Browns are getting a lot better in the secondary. They signed Troy Hill, which greatly improves their slot situation, which Watkins can play. But if they put Brown in there or Boykins, Hill can handle that too. Then there's the signing of John Johnson, who is a certified between-the-numbers baller. He'll make it much more difficult for Jackson to lock onto the middle of the field and hit whoever he wants. Mark Andrew has killed the Browns the past two seasons. That will likely change this year. And before I throw it to you guys, I want to revisit that Monday night game and highlight what was the conundrum of Lamar Jackson and the problem that they continue to not address with this offense. Okay. So Lamar runs for 124 yards in the game. I'm pretty sure he had like a hundred of those uh, before halftime or near. Um, And then in the second half, he passes for over a hundred yards. He finished with 11 completions for 163 yards and a score. And then on the ground, nine rushes for 124 yards. But here's the issue. Mark Andrews, the leading receiver, five receptions, 78 yards. The next guy was Mark, Keith Brown with two catches for 50 yards. If you go look at uh, next gen stats, does those passing charts that really help visualize what a quarterback is able to accomplish on a football field that week, 14 game and much of Lamar Jackson's two starting years in this league is just predicated on throwing in between the numbers. He has a few, he had only one completion of more than 12 yards outside the numbers. It was a 24 yard completion versus the Browns. Everything else, if it was outside the numbers, was near the line of scrimmage. And then you just see a lot of green uh, near the hashes and inside. So point being is this. Sammy Watkins isn't going to solve that problem. Keeping on the field is the first thing. And even if he is on the field, the Browns are built to defend this Ravens passing offense. What is going to be continually impossible to defend as Lamar stays in his athletic prime are those feet. I think John Johnson and Troy Hill help. But in terms of this passing offense, they once again stay stagnant unless the draft changes that. But, Doug, how you teased this setup before our break, I'm really starting to wonder 
if Lamar Jackson's the only reason you're going to say the Ravens are better than the Browns in 2021, I'm not sure that's the safest bet. I knew we were going to get to Lamar Jackson in the middle of the field, right? And and I, I it would be wrong to say that like John Johnson is a Lamar Jackson stopper, right? But you can see against Scott, it's the Browns want to get better defensively, but the pieces they're added, you can see even Anthony Walker, right? If he's a little faster, a little more a quicker to, to get to things, I don't think Lamar will have room to throw in the middle of the field as much or run in the middle of the field as much when you add Troy Hill and John Johnson and maybe, you're, you know, Jacob Phillips might be on the field a little bit more, whatever. You're a little more athletic. You can see again how the Ravens didn't add a ton and the Browns are getting a little, are getting a little bit better at stopping it, Scott, when you think about this matchup. Well, yeah, I guess if you want to split it up between stopping Lamar passing versus stopping Lamar running, you know, passing definitely in the middle of the field, you got much stronger. <laughs> and, and the fact that uh, you can, and it's not just John Johnson, it's the, the potential of Grant Delpit uh, coming back too. So uh, those are two huge things. Linebacker wise, uh, as far as closer to the line of scrimmage, guys who are going to have to chase Lamar, we don't really know yet. Uh, you really kind of hope, I guess, that that guys like Jacob Phillips and Mac Wilson blossom a little more. Um, but you're kind of in the same spot you were last season with the linebackers. You just don't know. And that could be an issue. And earlier Ellis said how the Ravens offensive line might be trending downward. There are people who might say the same thing about the Browns defensive line right now, because there's all the issues on what tech McKinley will or won't be. You do have miles Garrett. He has not performed great against the Ravens in his career. Um, and then you do have Sheldon Richardson, but again, you don't know what you're getting from McKinley. You don't know if he's going to ultimately be the guy getting the most snaps there after the draft. And then whoever is playing next to Richardson is still kind of up in the air as well. Um, so that front seven there does have questions for the Browns. And I think that leads more to how you defend Lamar's legs than, than anything. But you do in general, Ellis, feel like the Browns will have a better time trying to defend this Ravens offense in 2021 than they did in 2020, based on both what where the Browns are defensively and where the Ravens are offensively that the Ravens, you know, the Browns do what they do. If the Ravens added Tyree kill, it'd be like, well, congratulations on John Johnson deal with this, but they didn't do that. Do you think just that is a fair assessment in general? The Browns are closing the gap here. I do. I think that's exactly what's going on. If the Ravens were able to acquire a guy like Kenny Galladay, I think this would be a completely different conversation. Now you're worrying about the Ravens both outside and in rather than inside and out. Okay. But Scott brings up a really good point about the one way this Ravens team still could cause plenty of issues for the Browns defense. And that's on the ground. That was really the problem with the Ravens offense all year is at times they just beat themselves. They wanted to be a, a, a pocket passing team and they just didn't have the, the, the ability and the personnel to do so, or the scheme, the Ravens finished 11th in DVOA third uh, best running offense, 17th best passing defense, or excuse me, best passing offense where I think that the Browns defense may be in trouble with this front seven situation Scott's talking about is in the way Baltimore deploys their personnel. They used 11 personnel only 47% of the time compared to 21 and 22 personnel, heavier formations, 18 and 16% of the snaps. Keep in mind, 
the league average for 11 personnel is up towards 65%, while 21 and 22 purse were 7 and 8%. So the Ravens are using heavier formations more than double the time of the rest of the league. It, simply, it's just a completely different style of offense that the Browns need to prepare for. And when you have that type of heavier purse, we've talked about it on Gotta Watch the Tape before, the Browns aren't geared into having more linebackers on the field. Can three safeties and Troy Hill combat a heavier front? I'm not sure. It will help against the pass. But if the Ravens just, com- just commit to running this football, I can't go a whole podcast without mentioning J.K. Dobbins and Gus Edwards. Both were inside the top 10 for big runs. And Dobbins could be the second best running back in the AFC North. And a guy who going into his second year now could be a top five guy in the AFC. If the Ravens commit to being a running football team versus Cleveland. That may be what tilts us back to Baltimore, despite Cleveland just having an overall much more talented roster and making those acquisitions that should make throwing to the ball to the middle of the field a much more difficult task. If the Browns want to have a Ravens period, that practice it should be for for defending the Ravens offense not for dealing with their blitz on defense and what more could they do because I do believe you know J.K. Dobbins I think when you look at his rookie numbers last year a lot of that was well he was playing with Lamar and so Lamar's the f- most dangerous guy so it opens things up for J.K. Dobbins but on the other hand what J.K. Dobbins is going to give them they're going to lean on him more in 2021 he's going to be good he is going to be good I think he's going to give them more back there than they've had at running back with Lamar Jackson. So you have to do that. Scott, is there anything more? What, what else should the Browns do defensively? Should they, I mean, should they, should they be targeting bringing in like a, a more dynamic defensive tackle? Like, is that if they added another defensive end, if they got Jadavion Clowney, who's good against the run, would that be a huge thing against the Ravens? Like if we're saying, well, the Ravens run game is still a problem. What should the Browns be doing about it? I mean, yeah, more talent, I'm sure, <laughs> helps in any situation. But I think it's more probably – it's more about scheme and how you – you have to make sure guys are in the right spot and doing what they're supposed to be doing. And what they're supposed to be doing is unlike what they're doing against most other teams because Lamar Jackson is unlike most other quarterbacks. So it's it's kind of a unique situation. And I guess in the Browns' favor, I guess, is that they play them twice. But that's also, I guess, a negative that they, they have to face – face him twice in a season, you would think that they would have a better grasp on how to deal with Lamar Jackson than, than most other teams. Um, it just, you know, hasn't happened yet. And you can do all you want against his running. And then he comes out of the bathroom with a cape on and, you know, throws a 44 yard touchdown on fourth down to crush you. And, you know, in a game he had to win. So it's, this is going to, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a talent that the Browns have to deal with more than any other team. And, it's, there's no easy answer to how you defend him. So we got to get out of here. Let's wrap up with this then, Ellis. We know what you think about Lamar Jackson. Scott was just saying all good things about Lamar Jackson. He's one of one. Other than that, which is like, well, take away the MVP, which is, of course, like, well, that's the whole point. But that's just going to be the case. I mean, he's not going anywhere, and he's going to be in the league for the next 10 years facing the Browns, and he's going to be in his athletic prime for at least a few more years. That's there. The rest of it, the Browns gained on the Ravens, right? Or maybe I would put it, the Browns moved away from the Ravens because I'm going to assume the Browns are actually ahead. Why do I feel saying they're gaining on the Ravens, right? That the Browns, Lamar is Lamar and that exists, but the rest of this, the Browns are in pretty decent shape in this matchup. That's exactly it. And to Scott's point about just how one of one Lamar is, I mean, 
puts on the Superman cape and takes off for what looked like a running play and then dumps it off for a pass. Like that, that's not a passing touchdown, even though it goes in the books. That's a play and opportunity created with his feet, right? You can't account for those. What you can do is take away things you know that Lamar relies on, which was the middle of the field passing game. And that was an all out assault by GM Andrew Barry in correcting that this off season by signing John Johnson and Troy Hill. I think it's a huge step in the right direction. How do you stop a magician from disappearing? You get more athletes, like Scott said, and that you tease Doug. Jadavion Clowney, sign him. Draft is Avon Collins. Keep loading up on athletic talent, both at end, at linebacker, to just hope that Lamar is not right as much because there are at least athletes in his network, in his his zip code at least that are trying to gain him and not guys like Malcolm Smith, Adrian Claiborne or Porter Augustine. No offense to those guys, but Lamar puts those guys on skates, built through the draft, signed some talent. You're getting closer. You took away the middle of the field. Now let's see if we can slow down his feet. I'm just envisioning like us getting back in the locker room at the Browns facility and Ellis walking up to Porter Augustine and saying, Hey man, you're not as good of an athlete as Lamar Jackson. And Porter Gustin be like, let's go outside and fight right now. I am taking offense. What a burn, right? What a burn. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. That's both sides of the Ravens. We're going to keep looking at the teams that matter through a Browns lens. Steelers on the horizon, Bengals on the horizon, some other teams that matter on the horizon. We're also building up to the draft. Make sure you're listening to the Orange and Brown Talk five days a week. And we appreciate you guys being part of Gotta Watch the Tape. For Ellis Williams and Scott Patsko, I'm Doug Maurice. Thanks for diving in on Gotta Watch the Tape.